Let's go then to our sermon text for today, which is Genesis chapter 31, verses 17 through 55. You'll find a common thread among all these passages, different deliverances, uh, miraculous or providential, of God's people from those who are hostile. Genesis chapter 31, verses 17 through 55. This is after Jacob spoke to his wives about leaving, and so it picks up in verse 17. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock and all his property that he had gained, the livestock and his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and rose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed him close after him into the hill country country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you tricked me and have that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry, that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the ram of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. 
From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wage ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jegar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid and Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with me, or with Although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See, this heap and the pillar which I have set before you and me, this heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God's blessing upon his word. Lord God, we thank you for giving us your scripture, the examples of your faithfulness, for giving us your promises in Christ, and the demonstration of your fulfillment. We pray that you would bless us through your word, to strengthen us by it, to give us understanding, and a heart that, and mind that will retain these things. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. It is a rather long passage, so long that it's not even on your sermon insert, wouldn't fit on it. It's not even the whole chapter, but it is nevertheless uh, basically one passage. It's unified by the leaving of Haran, Paddan Aram, that uh, place beyond the Euphrates River, and the closure of this portion of Jacob's life. Uh, As he moves away from one threat, Uh, of course, next chapter he'll meet another one, but in this case, at least one chapter closes as the hostility of Laban uh, is brought to an end. We've seen several parallels between Jacob's time in Haran 
and his descendants later time in Egypt. As Jacob was craftily subjected to servitude in a foreign land, so the Israelites would be craftily subjected to servitude in a foreign land. As Jacob was fruitful and multiplied in that condition, so the Israelites would continue to be fruitful and multiply in Egypt. As Jacob obtained wealth at the expense of Laban through God's intervention, so the Israelites would plunder the riches of the Egyptians through God's intervention. Now in this passage, we find another parallel. Jacob's exodus and deliverance from the hand of Laban and the Israelites' exodus and deliverance from the hand of Pharaoh. As he would leave the house of bondage and be pursued by the one who sought to hold him in that bondage. And both cases, that hostility would be held back by the hand of the Lord. In different ways, admittedly, but we see a similar pattern here. These parallels are present because God was fulfilling the same promises with the same people in different generations. These are not simply reoccurring literary devices that, you know, whoever put this together, as the more liberal scholars would say, that you know, just liked using this literary device and pattern. But no, it's rather a reoccurring instances of Israel's need and God's faithful salvation. We have the same promises, the same covenant, the same people, time and again, from generation to generation. And Moses included these instances in his accounts of Israel's forefathers to teach his generation and to teach future generations of the faithfulness of their covenant Lord. You and I are heirs of the same promises through faith in Jesus Christ. All those who are in Christ, as Paul says, are children of Abraham, like Jacob, like his descendants, heirs according to promise. So as God brought forth his people out of bondage, and delivered them from their enemies. So he liberates and delivers his people today. God delivers his church from his enemies, from her enemies, from wicked men, from the world, from the devil, from sin, and from death. He brings them forth to himself, to freedom, to their inheritance, and to rest. As John the Baptist's father said, God raised up Christ, quote, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. It's in Luke chapter 1. That's the covenant of grace right there. The, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And he raised up Christ to fulfill that promise and to deliver us that we might be the Lord's. We say that when we say the, the Ten Commandments uh, quite often, right? How does it begin? God is the Lord who brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son, we might be the Lord's. And that's why we therefore seek to obey him, that we have no other gods, devote ourselves to him. In this passage, we see how Jacob obeyed God by leaving Haran. We see that God protected Jacob from Laban's hostile pursuit. And thirdly, that Laban and Jacob made a covenant, establishing peace. 
Or we could put it this way. Obey the Lord by faith, for God will deliver his people and give them rest. And give them rest. Let's begin then with the first part, that Jacob obeyed God by leaving Haran. So we should obey the Lord likewise by faith. God had told Jacob to return. That was in the previous section. God had spoken to Jacob in verse 3 and said, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Jacob told this to his wives, recounting a vision from God. And his wives agreed with him and encouraged him to do what God had told him. And so he does it in the passage we read today. This decision took courage. This decision took decisiveness. He knew that this decision was risky, that Laban would not approve of uh, finally letting him go. Jacob could have lost everything. As he describes, he had a reasonable fear that Laban might catch him and take everything away from him and do him harm, leaving him the way he had been 20 years earlier as he had come, and perhaps worse. As Jacob explained to Laban why he fled secretly, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Nevertheless, Jacob still left. He left with his flocks and his herds, his possessions and his servants, his wives and his children. He trusted the word of the Lord, and encouraged by his wives, he set out with his household while Laban was busy. Laban was shearing the sheep. That was a a big deal when you had hundreds and hundreds of sheep. Uh, It was a, a major time. He was occupied, and so Jacob took the opportunity to leave. Uh, There was no contract anymore holding him back. He had paid for his wages. He had paid uh, the the bride price for his wives, their their engagement presents. He had worked it off. He was going to leave now. And Jacob obeyed God because he had seen, seen that God was with him. He had seen the hand of God at work. He trusted God to continue to be with him. God's command, after all, had also come with the assurance of a promise, and I will be with you. Uh, he both combined promise and a command and a call to Jacob, just as he had when he called Abraham and said, go to the land and I will show you and I will bless you. And so motivated by this faith, believing God, embracing the promise, he therefore trusted the Lord and acted upon his word and obeyed, and he left. It's by faith in God's promises that we receive the promises. This is key in all the, the uh, patriarchs and in God's people today. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Faith in God's promises would be key for his descendants as well. It's those who share the faith of Abraham, who are children and heirs of Abraham, You and I are justified by faith alone, faith in the promises of God in Christ Jesus. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that God may be with you. This faith then expresses itself by obedience. As Hebrews 11 verse 8 said of Abraham, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. By faith he obeyed. Do you believe in God, then do what he has told you. He will not lead you astray. 
He is trustworthy. And if we trust him, we will act by his word. If he gives us a promise, we'll embrace it. If he gives us a warning, we'll heed it. If, we, if he gives us a command, what should we do? We should obey it believingly. And this faith expresses itself also by endurance and courage. It's by steadfastness in the face of difficulty and risk. Uh, when you meet with uh, difficulty, persecution, temptation, uh, pressure to go off course, uh, to get off the path, uh, to depart from the path of duty, this when steadfastness rooted in faith counts. Jacob had endured patiently for 20 years. He had worked hard all that time looking to what God had in store for him. And then he acted decisively despite the risk because he trusted in God. So likewise, hold fast to the way of the Lord despite the trials during that path, running the race with endurance, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and despite the risks that may accompany the that may accompany it, that may accompany the actions. If, has God told you to do something? Is it clear that this is what God has told you to do, that his word demands that you take this course of action? Then do not hesitate. Uh, this is the Lord we trust in, so we are willing to follow his commands. But then secondly, what we find is that God protects Jacob from Laban's hostile pursuits. Jacob leaves, and as he expected, when Laban hears of this, he gathers up his kinsmen, he gathers together, not quite his chariots like Pharaoh did, but something equivalent on, in his way of being able to gather a force that would be able to, uh, to overwhelm Jacob, and sets out for him, pursuing him, and after seven days, uh, he catches up with Jacob. But God protects Jacob by rebuking Laban in the night. Laban uh, continues to slander Jacob. He would have done Jacob harm, but God delivers them from harm. In verses 22 through 23, we find that Jacob pursued Laban like Pharaoh later pursued Israel. Consider how closely even the wording is. Genesis 31, when it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, you know, he pursues him. Exodus 14, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, he gathers his forces and pursues. So despite Laban's smooth words about sending Jacob off with a party, I think we should know Laban by now that this is probably not going to have been the case. If God had not rebuked Laban, uh, that it would have not been a fun party. These are not honest words. Uh, Jacob's remark in verse 42 was true. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. That's certainly the pattern that we have found in their dealings thus far. Laban set out in pursuit, intending to take away everything by force. Even when he's restrained, he still says, these are my daughters, these are my children, these are my flocks. He's still... Uh, wanting to hold on. As he says in verse 29, it is in my power to do you harm. But, as even Laban said, 
God was the one who restrained him. He had appeared in the night, told him to not say anything good or ill, to not make a judgment upon Jacob. He still says a lot of things, but he's not making uh, a judgment and enforcing it. God's message to Laban was similar to earlier rebukes of hostile rulers. What happened when Abraham was in danger from Pharaoh, from Abimelech? God rebuked them, either by a message, by plagues. When Isaac and his wife were threatened, uh, in that case providentially, things were exposed in a way that they were delivered. Similar also to God's later protection of Israel at the Red Sea as the hostile army was effectively stopped, of course, in that case, by being totally overwhelmed. So here we have a similar exodus from bondage and a deliverance. God remembers his covenant forever. As Psalm 105 says of the patriarchs, when they were few in number of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. This is how God kept his covenant with Abraham, that he would be faithful to them, be their champion and protector, even when they were few in number. So God was fulfilling his promises. He was fulfilling his promises that he had renewed with Jacob to be with him, to keep him, to protect him as Jacob's shepherd. Now, Rachel had foolishly, I think, stolen her, household, the, her father's household gods. Uh, the scripture does not say a lot about why she stole these household gods. Perhaps Laban had used them in the divination that was referenced earlier, and she was not wanting him to use that to find them, or perhaps she still had some attachment to them. We don't know exactly why, but it doesn't seem right that she did so. She stole from her father. And Jacob did not know of this. Uh, he uh, implicitly judged Rachel, uh, not knowing that she had taken these things. But perhaps the main point is that Laban's gods were humbled. Laban's gods were powerless. Laban's gods were stolen. And if Rachel was telling the truth, they were also defiled, uh, ritually defiled, if the way of women was indeed uh, upon her, at least according to the later ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant. Uh, Laban's gods were powerless. But the fear of Isaac, the God of Jacob, he is the one who delivered his servant. Now in verses 36 through 42, God make, uh, Jacob makes known his case. Jacob is, begins now to be vindicated, even in the eyes of Laban. He gives glory to God as well for this deliverance. You know, Laban had falsely accused Jacob. Why have you driven my daughters away like captives by the sword? Well, actually, the Bible's already been very clear that the wives went willingly. He told them. He convinced them. They said, yes, we, can go, we should go. What God told you to do, do. Um, and so we know that Laban's words are not accurate. Uh, he had falsely accused Jacob. He had tried to shift the blame, similar to Pharaoh and other rulers in earlier parts of Genesis. But his words are hollow and dishonest and desperate. When the search for the stolen goods fails to find anything, Jacob now is in the position to argue his case. Finally, after like 20 years, or at least after the, the, the previous years in which the tables had been turned upon him, he's now in a position to argue his case more fully. Look at what's been happening. I've been with you 20 years. I've been 
uh, out in the desert, hot by day, cold by night, sleep has been chased from my eyes. Whenever something was stolen by the flock, I bore the lost. Uh, bore the loss. It's not the way it normally worked, but it's the way it worked in Laban's household. That Laban's flocks had nevertheless prospered, no miscarriage among their flocks that they had grown, and finally Jacob, of course, got his wages too, but he had worked, he had been faithful, he had suffered, and now it all comes out as he is able to argue his case before his accuser, his, uh, before Laban. And he ascribes his deliverance to God. If God had not been on my side, I would not have anything. Very similar to Psalm 124, which we'll sing after the sermon. If God had not been on our side, let Israel now say uh, that we would have been trapped, we'd have been ensnared, we would have been destroyed by our enemies. But our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Jacob had endured much at Laban's hand, but God alone had protected and delivered him. So what do we learn from this? Learn to trust in the Lord for your protection. Learn to trust in the Lord for the preservation of his church. Certainly not every individual is delivered in this way when harm is intended him. There are martyrs for the sake of Christ. But also consider that this was effectively the whole future of the church that was in Laban's hands. Certainly there was Isaac and Rebekah, but they were old. Rebekah herself might have passed away already by this point. This was the church of God that was being threatened, just as it would later be at the Red Sea. And yet God would preserve his church and make sure that it was not destroyed. Christ would build his church, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And individually for you, of course we know that even the martyrs gain, that they receive, are received by Christ into eternal glories and are delivered from all the hostility of men. So trust in the Lord for your protection. It's that same dedication that he shows in this life that is greater in the life to come. He has bound himself to his people by covenant. The mighty will be rebuked if they dare to touch the Lord's anointed, if they dare to touch Christ and his people. Even when the church is few in number and of little account, Wandering from people to people, their champion is almighty. We know that Jesus is among his church. When Paul persecuted it, how did Jesus describe it? Why are you persecuting me? This is the way God sees the way people treat you and me, those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and his church all together. So endure the slander of the ungodly if others persecute you, as Laban did Jacob. Of course, be sure they don't have grounds to accuse you. Don't suffer as a meddler or as a a thief or as as Peter says. Make sure you don't suffer for doing wrong. That, That would only be just. But if you suffer innocently, if you suffer unjust accusations, if people speak evil of you on account of Christ for righteousness sake, then take heart that you are in good company with Jacob, with the prophets, with Christ. Vindication will come in time. Jacob was able to clear his name, but it took years before the opportunity presented itself by the grace of God. For some people, it might be only on the day of judgment, but that will be a tremendous day. And then finally, like Jacob, give glory to God. Acknowledge his salvation. When God answers prayer, 
when God has delivered you from sin, when God delivers you from other threats, give glory to him. If God had not been on our side, we would have been destroyed. As, God, as Jacob confesses the hand of God, so give God his due. Only the Savior is able to release us from the schemes of wicked men, from the world and its lust and pride, from the devil who seeks to devour you, from sin which seeks to corrupt, wages war against your soul to destroy it, and from death itself. God is our Redeemer. Now, the last part of this passage, we find that Laban and Jacob make a covenant establishing peace. God will give rest to his people. Having been rebuked by God and then reproved by Jacob, Laban, after making a desperate assertion of his, uh, what he saw as his rights, he relents and he seeks a covenant with Jacob. Much as Abimelech had sought covenants with Abraham and Isaac, This covenant is a product of God's intervention. It would not have happened if God had not rebuked Laban. But now, God provides peace and rest to Jacob from this trial. Not yet from all trials, but from this trial. He brings it to an end. As Proverbs 16, 7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Laban and Jacob made a covenant to establish peace. Laban was unable to keep Jacob's household, so he lets them go, and this is confirmed by this covenant, and he relinquishes them to God's care. It marks the end of this struggle. It's as definitive as the crossing of the Red Sea. A boundary is fixed. Jacob obtains rest and is able to move on to the Promised Land, like Israel did. It marks a definitive break with the old country, the country that Abraham had left, that he did not want his son to return to, which Jacob only returned to because of the necessities and was told to come back. And now would any others return? The next time they crossed the Euphrates River was over a thousand years later as they were captives of Babylon, and they were earnest to return. But this, this is a, a definitive break now as they will journey on. There's also a widening distance indicated by the different languages. The heap of stones is called a heap of witness, but it's given two names because one is in Aramaic or Syrian, the language that Laban spoke, and the other one means the same thing in Hebrew, uh, the language that Jacob spoke. So they already start to see greater um, division between these two branches of the family as they are already now speaking different languages. In this final portion, we learn several things. We learn about covenants. Again, it's great to see examples of covenants in Scripture, so we better know what this thing is that we have with God, uh, a covenant. Here is a covenant between two uh, men who had been at odds, and it is a, we might call it a treaty. We, we called covenants alliances or bonds. Um, this could work as well. A treaty especially might be uh, fitting as it ends the hostility and puts them at peace again. It has terms. I'm not going to cross this border to harm you, and you're not going to go across this border to harm me. You know, different covenants have different terms, uh, different relationships that they describe, but that's the one in this case. They have symbols. In this case, there were two symbols. There was a pillar, and there was a heap of stones. 
Uh, perhaps it was, you know, to have two or three witnesses, you know, to, to hold them accountable. It marked the border, but would also symbolize how God would watch over them. It's called Mizpah because that would be, uh, ref- refers to be a watch post. Uh, the heap of stones was a heap of witness. Uh, God would be uh, the one watching over them, watching over them to make sure that they observed the terms of the covenant. Uh, the terms of the covenant also imp- uh, included that Jacob would not take any more wives in addition to Laban's daughters, which is admittedly a little ironic. Um, maybe it was wrong for him to take even one wife more than the one wife that he took from Laban, but at least Laban recognizes it would have been wrong to take even more uh, in addition to Rachel and Leah. Uh, but he doesn't want Jacob to harm his daughters. He's not going to be able to enforce that, so God is going to be the one to watch over it and to hold them accountable to fulfill the obligations of the oath. And we see an oath here. They swear it, uh, that this covenant is, uh, is, is something that is established by oath, that God is invoked as the witness, and that you swear by something greater, uh, by God, to, uh, to bind the parties to this. And we find a sacrifice, that Jacob offers a sacrifice. As they're invoking God, they worship God, they have a sacrifice uh, in the hill country. And then finally a meal, a shared meal, that he calls his kinsmen to eat bread with them. And we have now, instead of hostile enemies, those who can sit down and have fellowship over a meal together, that peace has been established. And that's made tangible by sharing a meal with one another. In this case, the covenant served to resolve contention. They called God to hold the other to account. Hebrews 6 mentions this this common use of oaths and covenants. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. But he goes on to say how God himself swore an oath to his people, and he had no one greater to swear by. He swore by himself. This is how God makes his covenant with his people that he makes it swearing by his own name to be faithful to them. God sets the, the terms. He describes the relationship between God and his people. Of course, the covenant of grace establishes it through Christ, the mediator. There are symbols to this uh, covenant reminding us of it. We have baptism and the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is this covenant meal showing peace and fellowship between God and his people. We have communion with Christ, therefore fellowship with the triune God. We can sit in his presence. People typically didn't do that in the presence of the king unless they were uh, truly at peace with him. We might also learn something about dealing dealing with people who are stubbornly manipulative or oppressive, uh, that we should seek peace, receive peace when it's possible. As Psalm 34, 14 says, seek peace and pursue it. Sometimes you may need to agree to certain boundaries to create even some distance for the sake of peace. I say that cautiously because some people are very quick to distance themselves from any difficult situation, but there are times where uh, arrangements are needed to, uh, to create peace between parties who cannot get along together otherwise. But I think we also learn something about salvation. God delivers his people that he might give them rest. 
and security. Not only did he restrain Laban, but he also secured a lasting peace. In the history of the church, Old Testament, New Testament, God delivers his church from trials and gives it times of relative peace and stability. It's not the whole history of the church, but he sends it through trials and he brings them forth out of them. And there are times where the church is less visible, but times where it is more visible again, uh, where he establishes his people and he makes them as before and he builds up their numbers and they have peace and the fear of God dwells among them all. Even in the book of Acts, with all its persecution, there are times with our greater stability and peace. When he saves a person from sin, he breaks the dominion of sin and he brings that person into the security of his kingdom. Although there's trials and tribulations in this life, God, uh, the Apostle Paul writes that God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. But of course, the perfect peace and rest that we are promised comes in glory. As Revelation says, blessed are those who die in the Lord, for they will rest from their labors. It says in Revelation 7, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is what God delivers his people unto, is to peace, is to rest, and a security from these trials that we might be with him. So let us learn to obey the Lord by faith, to trust in the Lord and his protection. God will deliver his people and give them rest. As God brought forth his people out of bondage and delivered them from his enemies, so he delivers and liberates his people today. Through his Son, Jesus Christ, he delivers the church from his and our enemies from the world, from the flesh, from the devil, from the sting of death, uh, from all the schemes of the evil one, he will bring forth his church to freedom and to the security of his kingdom. To him be the glory, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your power that you have worked on our behalf, for your gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. We thank you for your covenant promises and these things which are written for our instruction that through the comfort of Scripture we might have hope. We pray that you would indeed fulfill these promises, that you would deliver your church from those who seek its destruction, from our own, from our own sins that seek our destruction. We pray that you would rule in our hearts and to deliver us from trials, that we might come forth refined as silver and gold, that we might give you praise, both now and forever, and from generation to generation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.